If we haven't met before, uh, you might be surprised to learn that I am not Pastor Matt. We're often confused uh, for the same person. That is not true. We look nothing alike. My name is Sam Myers. I'm the intern here. Uh, Matt is currently in Brooklyn. Um, He's preaching for a pastor friend of his who is bivocational, uh, and our prayers go with him. And uh, I'm not going to take this time to introduce myself for two reasons. Uh, The first of which is that I am really bad at introductions. I never know what to say. But the second of which is I I think maybe we have some things to talk about that might be more important than me today. But, But one thing that I will say by means of introduction is that I have a really bad memory. And I bring this up for two reasons. The first of which is that I probably have forgotten your name if we have met. And I'm really sorry for when I inevitably ask you the second or the third or the fourth, or the 70 times seventh time. I'm sorry, I'm doing my best. There are a lot of you. But I also bring that up in order to hopefully add a little bit more weight to what I'm about to say, which is that about seven or eight years ago, I read a book, and one line of it has stuck with me through that whole time. Now, many of you, that's probably normal. You can probably quote books from memory that you read back when you were in third or fourth grade. That is not how I live my life. There are very few books outside of the Bible that I could tell you anything from. But this is one of them. Um, It's a book called Forgotten God. It's by a pastor in California, or he used to be in California, named Francis Chan. And the idea of the book is that we as the American church um, have sort of moved away from the dependence on the Holy Spirit that characterized the church uh, in the book of Acts that we've been studying for the past few months. And it's funny to me because the quote that I memorized, that I remembered, is from the first chapter of the book. So it's kind of like my brain, like it got this quote down and then it pat itself on the back, you know, it's like, okay, well done, we're done, we're good, take take the rest of the day off. But but my brain's truancy notwithstanding, this quote has been really influential in my life and and it's kind of going to inform where we're going today. So I want to read it. So this is what Francis Chan writes. I don't know what the Holy Spirit will do or where he'll lead me each time I invite him to guide me but I'm tired of living in a way that looks exactly like people who do not have the Holy Spirit of of God living in them. I am tired of living in a way that looks exactly like people who do not have the Holy Spirit of God living in them. Now, I don't know about you, but the first time I read this, it was kind of like a punch in the gut. Because if I have the Holy Spirit living inside of me, by that logic, I should live pretty differently from people who do not have God himself in them. Shouldn't my life be impossible without the Holy Spirit? Unexplainable. Shouldn't it make no sense if God's not in me? I believe so, and I I believe that for all of us as Christians. But but what does that mean? What, What does it mean to live a supernatural life today? What does it mean to be, as the church, a miraculous community? And that's the question we're going to think about today. Um, What does it look like to live a miraculous life? As we've studied the book of Acts together, one thing you might have noticed is that Luke, who we believe is the author of the book, is not shy about talking about the supernatural. Um, In in the early church, supernatural displays are not the exception. They're the rule, right? And I I could go through the entire book. We could literally just sit here and read the entire book of Acts together and see all the miracles. But I just want to go uh, go through some highlights as we begin. So the story of the book of Acts, if you remember, it begins with the disciples waiting in a room because they're told the Holy Spirit is going to fall on them, whatever that means. And they wait, and then he does. 
and tongues of fire dance over their heads and a rushing wind blows through the room and suddenly they're empowered to speak in these languages that they've never learned before. I don't know how many of you have done that today. Not me. I really could have used it back in Spanish class in high school. It didn't happen. I'm still working through that with God. But these guys, they speak these other languages and they don't speak choppily. They don't speak um, like they just learned them that day. They speak fluently, like they'd been born there, like they'd been speaking them their whole lives. And this whole crowd of people from all over the world, all over the ancient world, hears them speaking in their own language. And, so, and they're so open to this, they're so taken, um, taken by this, that thousands come to know the Lord. That's chapter 2. And in chapter 5, we learn that the disciples were performing so many incredible healings and miracles that crowds of people were gathering so that even the shadow of Peter's clothes would touch them. And then they're arrested, they're thrown in jail, and an angel shows up and lets them out. That's all in one chapter. Move on to chapter 8. And the Spirit directs Philip to a certain road where he meets a certain man from Ethiopia. And Philip shares the gospel with this man, and the man comes to know the Lord. And you might be thinking, where's the miracle? Well, here's the miracle. Then Philip disappears, and he reappears in another city entirely. I'm not making that up. That's in there. And I'm not cherry-picking from the book of Acts either. There are so many cherries, I have no idea what to do with them. Because the supernatural in the early church is the norm. It's not these rare events. It's what is expected to happen. And so we see that amazing and wonderful miracles abound in the book of Acts. And we tend to fixate on these. And that's not wrong. And in fact, Jesus told his disciples that they would do even greater things than he would, that it was good that Jesus would leave because if he didn't leave, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come and empower them. So we expect God to be doing miracles through us. Our problem, though, is that sometimes we look at our lives and then we look at the book of Acts and then we look back at our lives and all we can feel is inadequacy. All we can say is that that doesn't look a lot like me. And maybe some of you in here, your lives do look like the book of Acts, in which case, praise God, but I know mine doesn't. And we want to live by the Spirit. We want to seek God's will. We want to look at our lives and know that God is moving in powerful ways. But we try to serve the Lord faithfully, and we try to be obedient to his commandments. And even in our best moments, our lives do not look like the incredible events we're told about in the Bible. I think these feelings are really normal. I think this is something that most believers experience. When you read the Bible, it's hard not to. I know that I feel them frequently. So today we're going to look at two different stories in Acts chapter 19, and you can start flipping there if you want. In one of these stories, I would safely define as miraculous. And the other of these stories is just about the biggest disappointment in the pursuit of the miraculous in the entire Bible. And my hope is that by the end of this, we'll think about miracles in a new way, but not a way that tells us we can't do miracles, actually in a way that encourages us and tells us to believe all the more that God wants to do miracles through us every single day of our lives. So we're going to jump into the text. I don't know if you've made it there or not. I'm going to assume you have because you guys are smart people. Acts chapter 19, we're going to start at verse 1, go to verse 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized, or when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. 
And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. We're going to stop there for a moment. Now, to me, this is a really fascinating text for a few reasons. Um, The first of which is that the author here calls these people Christians. You know, we see that it uses the word disciples for them, but they've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know how much theology you guys know, but as far as theology goes, the Trinity, the whole Father, Son, Holy Spirit thing, that's kind of a big deal. That's basically point number one. I have no idea how these people managed to become what Luke calls disciples without knowing about the Holy Spirit. And I think I see some of my surprise echoed in what Paul asks in verse 3. He seems almost incredulous. He says, into what then were you baptized? And they reply that they were baptized into John's baptism. And we don't need to go into the details here, um, but basically what this means is that their version of following Christ was really built off of the testimony of John the Baptist, who you might remember from the Gospels. And John the Baptist um, was a really great man. In fact, Jesus said that no one born of woman was greater than John the Baptist, but he didn't know the Gospel. John the Baptist's testimony was about the law. It was about repentance. It was about going back to living a certain way and avoiding certain things and doing certain things because he knew that Jesus was coming, but he didn't know how Jesus was going to transform everything. So these believers, while they have good hearts, and while they're really seeking Christ as best they know how, they clearly aren't seeking the fullness of the gospel, because their version of the gospel is built around the law. Now, maybe this is because of my own story and history, but what Paul says next is really amazing to me. And when I say that this might be because of my own story, what I mean is that I've gone to an evangelical church my whole life, and I went to an evangelical college to study Bible. And most of my closest friends are evangelical Christians who love the Lord and love theology. And now, I'm sure none of you have noticed this, but somewhere along the way, I noticed that Christians like to argue. I I see shocked expressions. I'll give that a moment to settle in. I'm sure you haven't seen or heard or, or God forbid, partaken in this in any way. I'm sure you haven't heard people arguing about what the first few chapters of Genesis means. We're all aligned on that, right? Or what what happens in the book of Revelation? Or how salvation works? Or what Jesus is going to do when he comes back? And by the way, if you're a guest with us today and you have no idea what I'm talking about, we need your help. So please, come on in. But this is why Paul's handling of this situation is is so shocking to me, because he doesn't argue with them. I don't know if you noticed that. His response to them is this. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So notice with me what he did here. He validated their beliefs. Do you see that? He sees the good underlying them. He sees the nuggets of truth, and he sees their good desire in this argument. And then he ties their beliefs into Christ not making their beliefs to be something evil, but just something that could use a little bit more Jesus added into them. And as he does this, God moves and the believers respond and they receive the Holy Spirit and they evidence this by practicing these spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues and of prophecy. And this is a beautiful thing on its own, 
But, but what Luke writes in verse 7 hints, I think, at the greater reaching significance of this event. Because he says there were about 12 men in all. And if you're like me, having read the book of Acts, and you see this again, your mind immediately jumps back to the original 12 men who received the Holy Spirit. That is the disciples. And we, we just wonder for a moment, huh, I wonder what God is going to do through this new group that's meant to parallel the disciples. And we, and we wonder because God is big, and the last time he moved, the world changed. And we wonder what he's going to do again through these new 12 men. So let's pause. Is what Paul did here miraculous? Well, it really depends on our definition of miracle, right? And I know that we don't walk around thinking the definition of a miracle is blah, 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 blah. But I think we do subconsciously hold to a view that what constitutes a miracle are only the most fantastic accounts out of the many fantastic accounts of Scripture. So if I ask you what a miracle is, for an example of one, you might say things like healings, right? Like casting out demons, like calling down fire from heaven, like multiplying fish, you know? Those types of things are miracles, right? Yes, I agree. But what about loving people we disagree with on things that are incredibly personal and fundamental to our lives? and yet people who claim to be Christians? What about a man in a dark room at 3 a.m. having a panic attack, praying for peace and feeling a tiny glimmer of hope crop up amidst his twisting and wrenching thoughts for just a moment? Is that a miracle? What, if, what about a, a single parent getting a raise unexpectedly the week that the savings account was going to run dry? Is that a miracle? I believe that if our definition of what a miracle is is so small that it can't fit in these types of move of God that others will be tempted to describe in natural terms, but we know better, right? I believe if our definition of miracle is that small, then not only are we wrong, but I think we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. When we limit what we think a miracle is to something that's big, loud, and flashy, I think we fall for a dangerous trap, and I think it's the same one that David's father Jesse fell into when he thought his son was too small to be used by God. I don't know if you know the story, but basically God tells the prophet Samuel, this is a long time before Jesus, God tells the prophet Samuel that the next king of Israel is one of the sons of a man named Jesse. So Samuel goes to Jesse's house, and he's like, do you have any sons? And Jesse starts parading his sons out in front of them one by one, and each one Samuel's like, no, that's not the one. Do you have another? And another comes by. And then all of the sons that Jesse brought to go before Samuel are gone. And it's just Jesse and Samuel. And Samuel's like, do you have any other sons? And Jesse's like, mm, technically, yes. Well, define son. Because he has, he has one younger son who's out there tending the sheep. And at the idea, and this guy is David, and at the idea that David, the youngest, the runt of the litter, the one who's a shepherd out in the pastures right now, cleaning up after sheep, at the idea that he could be the king, Jesse is amazed, and he doesn't believe it, and he starts making excuses, but God rebukes him strongly. And as Christians, I think we do really well to apply what God says here to Jesse, to our understanding of miracles. Here's what God says. For the Lord sees not as man sees, Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. There is nothing natural 
about a person in this broken world, world choosing to let his decision-making be led by the Spirit of God or deciding to chase after God's will instead of his own. That is fully 100% supernatural. It is a miracle to live as Jesus did in a world that crucified him for being God. And while it's tough for us, because I think we are impressed by what we can see, you know, we use our eyes a lot. God is not so shallow. He is not interested or impressed by what we think looks miraculous. Because he knows what he's truly doing in both the big and the small things of the Christian life, the flashy and the mundane. I don't believe that we as Christians need to heal in making the blind men see or making the lame woman walk ways to look at our lives and see the supernatural activity of God in it. And I hope that we do these things as well, if the Lord puts us in a situation where that is his will. But many of us, and I would say most of our everydays, do not involve that. If we look only for these types of things, we'll be disappointed. And the rest of us, many of us will be disappointed for most of our lives. And the rest of us who do experience this kind of event once or twice in our lives will live our entire lives defined by these one moments. These one moments where we saw God moving, when God really wants to take us into what is next and not leave us in this tiny moment of our story. Another problem when we define miracles like this, when we think of miracles as only the loudest, the flashiest events, is that we end up spending our lives chasing miracles instead of chasing God. We, we chase these moments for their sakes rather than fixating on Jesus Christ, whether he calls us to fame or to be forgotten, because we want something that will validate our faith if we believe that miracles are only these huge events. And it only makes sense because without these events, our lives would fall apart because we would have no evidence for our faiths if we think that miracles are only these biblical level events. And any time there's a season in our lives of relative quiet, a season of our lives of patient faithfulness, we start to wonder, what, what's wrong with me? Do I not have enough faith? I, I haven't seen a healing in, in a month, a year. What, what's, what am I doing wrong? Or has God forgotten me? But this type of understanding of, of the Christian life, of what it means to follow the Spirit, leads to a major problem, as we've seen. And I think we're going to see it illustrated as we continue on in Acts 19. Here's the problem. God doesn't always want to do the types of miracles we hope he wants to do. We're going to see this as we read Acts 19, 11 through 20. And when I say we read, I mean I'm going to read it and you guys are going to look at a page. So verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So obviously there's some cultural distance between us and this story. I don't know when the last time was you guys saw one of your local itinerant Jewish exorcists. For me, it's been a while. But leaving that aside for a moment, let's just focus on, on what these men that the Bible describes this way are doing. They're seeking big and flashy miracles in Jesus' name, right? And they're not doing it because they believe that it's God's will for a specific person to be cleansed of a demon. In fact, I think it's I, of a demon. I think it's really interesting that we don't even get the name of the person here because this story is not about that person, just as these exorcists did not care about the person. They cared about themselves. Sorry for the sound of the wind in my mic. I don't know how to stop it. They're doing this for their own notoriety, for their own fame, so that they'll be well-known. They're appending Jesus' name to their own pursuits, what they would be doing anyways by other names if it wasn't for Jesus. And while their circumstances and ours are pretty different, and I don't think any of us are, ma- are moonlighting as J- Jewish exorcists. I really don't. If you are, tell me. We'll pray for you. But I want us to consider their motivations, because I don't think that their desire to seek mighty visible miracles is really that different from what we can look for sometimes. But here's the great thing. God, in his immeasurable grace, is not a slave to what we want him to do. So as we see in in the story, these exorcists end up getting whooped. And the text says they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And, And I don't know if you've ever been in a fight or not. But a good litmus test for whether you won or lost is did you run away, were you naked, and were you bleeding? If you answered yes to any of those questions, congratulations, you've lost a fight. But here's why I say that it was actually gracious of God to let these wannabe exorcists be humiliated like this. Imagine if they had succeeded. These people go in, they attach Jesus' name to whatever rope prayer they had, they do their thing and the demon flees. If God allows it to work out for them, maybe they never find out that their goals are wrong and the way they're living isn't quite right. Maybe they never question whether these big and bright supernatural events that they're living for are the point of everything. Maybe they never end up confronted with the reality that God's ultimate will for people on this planet is not that they would do big things for him, but that they would know him in a big way and let him use them in whatever way he chooses to. And don't hear me denying that these types of amazing miracles happen today, because I fully believe that they do. And I believe that God wants us to heal people in his name and to cast out demons in his name, to send the forces of the enemy fleeing because the name of Jesus is that powerful and mighty as we embody his kingdom in tangible and real ways here and now. But allow me to just dream out loud for one second. What if our definition of miracle was more expansive than that? That's to say, what if instead of just getting pumped up about these biblical level events, what if we got pumped up about doing something for the glory of God and the Spirit's power that sure, if people felt so led, they could explain away in natural terms because we know that God is at work in the big and the small. Imagine for one moment, if we responded to those who have different beliefs than us, like Paul did in the first part of this chapter, validating and believing the good underneath their beliefs because remember, love always hopes, even given how much we disagree with them. 
And I get it, that's not quite as glamorous as casting out demons, and I'm not arguing that it is, but there is nothing, nothing natural about engaging with people gently when we disagree with them. That takes supernatural power. And if you don't believe that that takes supernatural power, listen to talk radio. <laughs> Took a second. What if we talked with those who had different theological beliefs from us? Buckle up. Those who had different political beliefs from us in a way that assumed the best in them and wanted to draw us both towards Christ together, not draw them from one political party to the other. But they're wrong. Oh, I know. I agree with you 100%. Whatever your beliefs are, it's fine. But that didn't stop Paul from seeing the best in the believers in Ephesus, even though they were wrong on basically part number one of Christianity. To be honest, I'm not, so, I'm not so sure which miracle we need more in this world. Do we need more demons to be cast out, or do we need Christians to pioneer a way of disagreeing with people that is full of love rather than antagonism and getting personal? You should think about that. I, I know my answer, and that's the miracle that I'm praying for the most. Christians have been called to miraculous lives. There's no way around it, but, but not in the narrow sense where a miracle is only something that is totally unexplainable, or a demon being cast out of a person, or living in the belly of a fish for three days, etc., etc. We have been called to live lives that are miraculous in exactly the many ways that God decides to move in us miraculously at the moment. For some of us, this might include phenomena like the events in Acts. But for most of us, the spirit-filled life is going to be to live like Jesus in the routine of every day, the mundane details of this Sunday, this Monday, this Tuesday. Believing that this world has been overcome by Christ, even as right now it waits in chains of brokenness for the day that brokenness itself will be broken. We believe that the kingdom is here and the kingdom is in the details as much as it is in the big and flashy parts of life because God's goal for us is not that we would do X, Y, or Z special thing. His goal for us is that we would know him. And, and I want to close on this point because if you hear nothing else that I say today, hopefully you've heard one or two things, but if you hear nothing else that I say today and you listen to this part, this is the most important thing I will say. The ultimate miracle has already been done for us. It's what God's done in Christ, conquering our sin and extending to us the offer of salvation and eternal life with him. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sent out 72 of his followers to the towns of Israel to proclaim that his kingdom had come and to do many miracles to show it, to perform healings and to cast out demons in his name. And after their trips are over, they return to Jesus and they're pretty pumped up because they say that, Lord, even the demons are subject to us. And it's pretty clear that their tone is one of surprise, right? And who can blame them? Because they've seen and done some pretty crazy things over the past couple weeks. But Jesus' response is really amazing. And I, and I want to let it guide us as we move out of this time of the sermon. He says, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This metaphor of their names being written in heaven, it means that they're his and he is theirs. It means that they are his treasure, his prize, and that he is their portion. It means that they are his sons and his daughters, and he is their father. And this is the most incredible miracle that you will find in the Bible, that God has extended his hand to us, has offered each and every one of us daughtership and sonship of the king, 
to make us princesses and princes of our Lord. God, the creator of the universe, the one who knows us entirely at our best and at our worst, has chosen you. He's chosen me, called us to be his own eternally, forever, right now, and every moment in between. Oh, how much God wishes to be with us that he would send his son in the ultimate miracle of everything. So as great as these stunning displays of power are in the book of Acts, let us not ultimately rejoice in them, even if our lives end up looking like the pages of Scripture, nor even in this wider definition of miracle that I think is more helpful to actually living the Christian life. What is the ultimate miracle that is worth celebrating is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, and that for our sake God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So so what do we do with all this? I know I've said a lot of things. You guys are doing so well. You're almost done. What do we do with the reality that Christ has done the most spectacular miracle, one so bright and powerful that we have nothing left to prove forever? Well, I want to offer something simple that we can all do today, even right now uh, in this moment, though I would prefer it slightly if you listen to me talk for just a minute or two more and then did it. I want us to pray for miracles. I want us to pray, yeah, for for God to put us in situations where he uses us to perform unexplainable healings for his glory. And when he uses us to cast out demons from suffering people, where he lets us speak in other languages, where he even raises the dead through us. And I believe in his name we may do all of those things. But those types of events alone do not fill up this word miracle. I want us to pray for those we disagree with in our theological beliefs, our political beliefs, and for the miracle of having conversations with them that show them in the world that we see the best in them and that our only true Lord is Jesus, not our theological systems or our political parties. I want us to pray for the miracles of days of quiet, humble obedience to the Lord in a world that is so loud, so flashy, and so busy seeking its own glory. I want us to pray for our brothers and sisters and maybe ourselves struggling with mental illness, with depression, with anxiety, and mental illnesses of a hundred different types manifesting in a thousand different ways. I want us to pray for the miracle of days of victory and moments of relief in the pain. I want us to pray for ourselves that in the emotional, physical, spiritual sufferings that for some reason the Lord has not decided to yet take us out of, I want us to pray for the miracle of enduring and of clinging to the cross, of believing that somehow, in some way in the kingdom to come, the present sufferings really won't be worth comparing to the future glories. As we hear God say, oh child, just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer. Because the Christian life, a life filled by the Holy Spirit and pursuing the will of God, is miraculous in every way from the events so stunning that they would fit right in in the book of Acts to those so apparently mundane that we wouldn't even think of mentioning them if someone said, how was your day? Because they're so commonplace. But our Lord turns every bit of our lives miraculous as we seek him. So let's pray now as we close this time to become more aware, to become more open, to become more ready, to believe more that God would help us in our unbelief that he would do countless miracles through us for the glory of his name and the big and the small of life. For we are a miraculous people in Christ. And this is what God has called us to. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you have done. More than anything else, thank you that you have completed what is needed to be completed. 
that you are not served by human hands as if you needed anything, for you have done it all, and we lack nothing in you, Father God. Lord, you have, you have completed the miracle. You have saved us. You have called us to be your people. You have made us, who were once sinners, to be beautiful and righteous before you, and called us even to live miraculous lives. So, Father God, I pray that you would open us up to this. I pray that you would take the pressure off for the miraculous life of a Christian to look a certain way. I pray, Father God, that you would lead us in your perfect spirit so that we would perform miracles to your glory in exactly the way that you desire us to. Whether this is big and loud and famous or whether this is quiet and humble and patient. Lord, you can do more through us as we embrace and seek your will than we could ever do alone. And so we surrender our lives to you. We believe that you are good, that you alone should lead our lives, Father. And we just ask this one question, Lord, what would you have us do? Lord, what would you have us do? We offer our lives to you. and We love you so much, Lord. Thank you for loving us first. And we ask you all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.